Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in Angular. We are here live at Microsoft Build, and I'm talking to Steve Faulkner. Steve, do you want to say hi? Hi, I'm Steve. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So what do you do for Microsoft? So I'm the maintainer of the JavaScript SDK for Cosmos. Okay. So if you're using JavaScript and using Cosmos, then you're using the code I wrote. Um, there's a couple other people that help out too, but um, that's that's my primary role. Good deal. So um, yeah, we're we're going to be talking about Cosmos DB, and uh, yeah, let's let's kind of dive in and just kind of get the basics out of the way. We've talked about it at previous conferences, but we always have new listeners. So yeah, let's get the basics out of the way, and then we can go deep and talk about what you can actually do with it. Cool. Um, so Cosmos is a multi-model distributed NoSQL database. That's a lot of words. It's a lot of stuff to unpack. Um, <laughs> so it is fundamentally just a, a document store. Okay. You read JSON, you write JSON, and it gets stored in a document format uh, in a database. Sounds like Mongo, except Mongo uses a binary version of JSON. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely like in the same vein as Mongo. Uh-huh. Uh, but the difference is, is that we sort of have the, it's, it's a service, right? Right. So it's um, all based on consumption as well. So, you know, you set a level of RUs, request units. There's no provisioning VMs or doing anything like that. Thank heaven. Yeah, beyond that. <laughs> That's a headache. But then we are in every region in right. Azure, and you can read and write in every region. So mm -hmm. we have multi-master, read and write. Gotcha. And then on top of that, we expose your data in a bunch of APIs. So the primary kind of main API is a SQL API. So mm -hmm. it, it's not a SQL database, but it's just a SQL interface to your data. Right. I, I understand it was modeled after Postgres. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can't do things like joins because it's not SQL under the hood. Okay, fair. But, you know, if you want to do select star from where, order by, right, you know, that stuff all works. Gotcha. So that's kind of the primary API. So, so your joins are... I do a query and then I do another query. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's ways to do joins on a document. Like you can join a document to itself a little bit. So, uh -huh. so there is minimal join support. But really, if you're traversing relationships, like in a graph of data, then you're going to just do multiple queries. Okay. It's partitioned. So everything you put in the database has an ID and a partition key. Uh -huh. And so, you know, anything like out there that is a partition data store people are familiar with works the same way. And then we also have these other APIs that we expose on top of it. So right. a lot of people come and they say, well, you know, we already do a bunch of Cassandra. So, well, mm -hmm. we have a Cassandra API. So if you want to move Cassandra workload over to Cosmos, it's very easy to do. We have a lot of people doing that very successfully. Nice. Uh, Cassandra, Mongo, Gremlin. We just released a new API for Spark today. So if mm. you have data in Cosmos and you want to analyze it with Spark, uh, we're going to have like full support for Spark as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I kind of looked through some of the options there, and it was it was interesting just to see, oh, you can get at your data all these different ways. 
But underneath, it's just a document store. Yep. Underneath, it's just a document store that all stores the data the same way. Gotcha. And it only runs in Azure. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, so there's no kind of like on-prem option or anything right. like that right now. So Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that in case people were thinking, oh, okay, I'm just going to get out there and NPM Cosmos DB and it doesn't work that way. You should definitely do that, but <laughs> uh, yeah, not it won't it won't give you a full database. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other thing that's kind of critical to know about the service. It, it's very much designed for a very high uh, throughput and low latency. So okay. we have very strict SLAs around um, all of our latency metrics. And so if you need, uh, you have a lot of data and you need to access that data fast, is very very good for that. Right, and an SLA is a service level agreement, and basically, yeah, it. It's a way of saying, you know, it's going to, yeah, it's going to meet these performance parameters or availability parameters for people who aren't familiar with the term. Yeah, exactly. So we have, uh, I'm not going to say it exactly because I'll get it definitely wrong. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think it's under 10 milliseconds for a point read um, mm -hmm. is, our, is our guaranteed SLA. Um, and so we have, and then we have some guarantees of our availability and stuff like that. So Right. Cool. So what kinds of things do you see people building on this? Because it, if it's a document database and you can't do joins and things like that, I can see that uh, for some people that might, you know, that might be a deal killer, right? It's yeah. like, I have a lot of related data, and so I don't want to do a whole bunch of queries to get all of it in the right way. Yeah, so this is kind of one of the first things we, we end up encountering with customers is that uh -huh. they have relational data. And it, I, I do think it's a myth that you, you know, can't store relational data in a NoSQL database. You just have to think about it a little differently. Right, fair enough. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time saying, okay, what's the right partition key? Are there ways to store this data in multiple ways, maybe? Uh -huh. um, Cosmos has a change feed, so everything that happens in the database will can potentially trigger an event downstream, right. like an Azure function. Yeah, I talked to the Azure functions twice. Got it. <laughs> this time around. So keep an eye out for that, folks. But yeah, and we talked a bit about that where, yeah, you drop something in Cosmos DB, and then Azure functions picks things up and modifies the database or generates reports or a bazillion other things. Well, a lot of times, a lot of people just write the data back to Cosmos. So we're right. creating you know multiple copies of documents, so you can query it in different ways. Right, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so how do you get around the joints issue then? So... The first thing you got to think about is sort of how you are going to use the concept of ID and partition key in special okay. ways, right? And when you say partition key, so that's not something that's generated by the database. It's something that I get to pick. It is. So we should kind of maybe dive into what partition key is. So, okay. um, you know, Cosmos is under the hood split across all of these machines. Right. And what machine your data lives on depends on the partition key. Okay. All right. So an individual partition can have up to 10 gigabytes of data. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, you can imagine if I have a, a table that has all of my, you know, users' orders, right. uh, I might partition on user ID. Mm -hmm. So that way that they're guaranteed to be co-located on the same machine is all right. of one user's orders. All right. And that allows me to then execute queries against that data very efficiently. That makes sense. So if I have a thousand users, then I could have a thousand partitions. And so that's all. A, a partition key is a logical partition, and then under the hood, that maps to physical partitions. So okay. we take your partition key, we hash it, and then uh -huh. that determines where it lives right. in Cosmos. But we don't really expose any of that. Right. You know, it really depends on the amount of data you have and how many RUs you've scaled mm -hmm. to. Uh, you know, if you have only a few gigs of data, you'll probably only be on one partition. Right. If you have terabytes of data, you'll have hundreds of partitions. That makes sense. So, so yeah, so then back to the joins, you know, you yeah. use a partition key. Yeah, so partition key becomes this thing that we, you, you actually spend a lot of time thinking about and playing with. And I, I feel like we tell people 
you need to think really hard about your partitioning up front. But they, they try to find something in their data that they think is a good partition key. They'll be uh-huh. like, oh, well, all my users have an email. So suddenly I'm going to pick email and that's it. <laughs> and, and you know, this always ends up being usually a mistake because that data changes potentially. Uh-huh. Um, it, you know, users have emails that change, obviously. But even if it's something you own, like a GUID, you know, you, you end up in situations where you can really efficiently store data by using composite partition keys, Right. So, oh, okay. So imagine a situation where um, you know you have a users table and an orders mm-hmm. table, right? And that's how it would be modeled in a traditional SQL database. Right. With Cosmos, what I would recommend somebody do is actually store all that data in the same database. So you can have any point read you need to do is just mm-hmm. uh, looking up by ID. Right. And then when you store the relationships, you use the partition key as sort of this overloaded index of how to query your data. Okay. So you can imagine a partition key having um, a com- be a combination of the user ID. And the order number. Uh, the order number, or just user ID dash orders. Right. And then that partition will contain all of the user's order data. Hmm. So I think when you start thinking about data in that way, and you, you can get really creative, and we definitely see people store their entire relational database in one Cosmos database because... They don't need to have separate tables for everything. They just right. store this graph of data. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I'm just trying to get my head around it is all because I'm pretty used to uh, relational databases like PostgreSQL. And then I've done some things with things like MongoDB and stuff like that. But yeah, typically it's stuff that it's like, you know, it's like this set of data, this set of data, and that set of data, right? And yeah. They don't necessarily interconnect that much. Yeah. I think the best way to, in my mind, when I try to get people to understand this, is that you're thinking about your data not as this like set structured thing, right? But something that's a little more fluid. You uh-huh. think about it refactoring it, like you refactor your code. Okay. So you find query patterns that you know say this is a primary query pattern that we're running into, and those can change uh-huh. over time, right? Right. Some new user comes in, wants a new feature, suddenly you have a new query right. pattern, and then you have to think about, well, how do I take my data now and store it in a way that is efficient for those query patterns? I gotcha. Um, and so that's where you start approaching these things like using partition key in sort of novel, mm-hmm. interesting ways, storing multiple copies of documents, storing data twice in order to you know, have it be queried in different ways. Yeah, but then you have to make sure that all of that is being kept up to date and things like that. There certainly is a cost and an overhead yeah. to that. Um, so Cosmos does have some stuff that will help you there. Uh, uh-huh. So we talked about change feed already, but... There is a uh, Cosmos is transactional, right? right? So transactions are written in JavaScript. Uh huh. So if you want to execute a transaction, uh, transactions are restricted to a single partition. Okay. But if you want to execute a transaction, you can write it in JavaScript, and that will be actually executed in Cosmos. Okay. Um, so we have a, a nice little like query language for doing that in Cosmos. Right. So essentially, what you can do is if you are storing two copies for two different query patterns you can set your database up so that it keeps them in sync. When you update one, it automatically updates the other and yeah. does that all as part of a single transaction so that if one fails, the other one fails and things like that. Yeah. Usually between transactions, JavaScript transactions, and between uh, change feed, you can get pretty right. far. It it does certainly put a little bit more onus on the application mm-hmm. to handle those edge cases, right? Right. Okay, I failed to write data in some way, now what? Yeah. And, and I did talk quite a bit with them about, you know, just some projects I'm working on. And one of them is just tracking podcast downloads. Yeah. And it did occur to me that, yeah, I could set up some Azure function that essentially 
tracks the download and saves the information to Cosmos DB. And so what you're telling me then is that I could actually then subscribe to the change feed. And, and they did talk about this, but we, they didn't go into like change feed and this is how this all works. But yeah, so then I would use the change feed and essentially say, okay, so when it records the download, then it goes and updates the hourly number, the daily number, and the monthly number or something. Definitely. And and then the next time there's a query, when somebody looks up that information, then it says, okay, you know, here here's all the download numbers, and they're just all up to date. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you could just do it exactly like that. Yep. But then I don't have to go and generate the aggregate every time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that you can at least have it be sort of this isolated logic that doesn't have to, right. you know, depend on other things in your application. Yep. Now, um, in the failure case, how do I get notified about that? So Cosmos, the SDK, will do retries for you, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there's ways to configure that. If something actually fails to write, I mean, you'll, you'll get an exception back from the SDK, right? right? Okay. It'll say something broke, and you know, um, we've retried a certain number of times. It'll give you that information, and then it's kind of up to you what to do next. That makes sense. And then um, what if something fails in like an Azure function off of the change feed? Uh, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not as familiar with how the Azure functions you know, how their failure loop works? Do they uh -huh. have a way to like track those and sort of queue off failures? I, I would imagine they do. I'm going to have to go back in time and ask those guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah. I, I guess the other thing is, is that, yeah, is there some kind of, I, I guess you would just build that into the Azure function if you need some kind of rollback capability off of that, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so yeah, you definitely would have to do a little more yourself to handle that right. situation. Um, but it, if you can do it within a Cosmos transaction, that's probably the ideal way. Right. Because the that will handle the rollback for you. If if right. the JavaScript function fails at any if point, if anything fails in there, it'll just roll it back. Rolls back anything you did in there, right? Yeah, that makes sense. I I think the other thing though is if I have like a primary data set that's driving the changes in the other ones, yeah, I may not want it to roll back, right? I may want to just keep that primary in there, and then, you know, just you know, run some function on my own that makes sure it's up to date. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> this is really interesting just, just from the, that standpoint. Well, what about scaling? I mean, how big can I get before I start bumping up against that SLA? It's unlimited, right? So it scales out horizontally across these partitions. And uh -huh. the way it's designed, it is literally unlimited. That's like fundamentals of Cosmos, which is pretty impressive. And right. it really sort of lives up to the hype there. Um, I, it's something I've personally been impressed since I've joined the team is that, that it, it really at large scale actually performs how they say it's going to perform. Nice. My friend AJ that's on the show, typically, he, he would put an obligatory, it's not unlimited because you're going to run out of disk space eventually. But what you're saying is, is we've never had anybody pump that much data into it. Yes, that's correct. So there, there is a, a limit on, in the physical world to how right. much hard disk space there is. So uh, at some right. point, we won't be able to buy anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not so worried about that. We'll find new ways to store stuff. Okay. If you have that problem, well, that's probably a good problem to have because that means your business yeah. is doing very well. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> hey, are you working on a complex enterprise Angular application? Angular Bootcamp is an intensive three-day workshop class to learn the basics of Angular through sophisticated techniques for real-world applications. They update the class regularly for the most current Angular, and a lot of the curriculum is also relevant to older versions. Or you can go beyond the three-day class with help from Oasis Digital, the team behind Angular Bootcamp. They can assist your team or launch your project, including scalability, data flow, state management, service architecture, full stack product design, and a ton more. Or you can contact them for a private class at your location or attend public classes in cities around the U.S. and occasionally in Europe. Online live instructor training is also available at angularbootcamp.com. 
So if somebody wants to get in and start playing with Cosmos and they're thinking, oh, this looks really interesting and maybe they really like the MongoDB model or maybe they do want to see what the SQL capabilities are. I mean, how do you get started with it? So we have a really great option for that. If you go to trycosmosdb.com, you will get a free account that uh, you don't even need to have anything else set up in the Azure portal. Uh, as long as you got like a Microsoft uh, login, mm -hmm. it will just set up an account for you and you can start playing around with the database. Right. Um, and that database goes away after a certain amount of time. I think it's right now it's like a month. Right. Um, but you know, you can just spin up another one then. Trycosmosdb.com. Correct. And then if I actually decide that this is something that I want to use, I can think of a number of use cases. I mean, one is, is that I host my app in Azure, and so I just, you know, it, it all just connects nicely, I would assume. But what if I'm thinking, okay, well, I want to host my app off in the cloud somewhere else, right? Yeah. So I have a server somewhere, or I'm running my app, you know, in somebody else's cloud, and I'm thinking, yeah, but Cosmos DB looks really nice, and I'd like to send my data across the web all the way to the other cloud and use all the capabilities there. Is that a possibility? Totally possible. Um, we definitely have like a fair number of people doing that because Cosmos does have some very unique capabilities. Mm -hmm. Cosmos is all, the, the base layer is all over HTTP. So all you get is a connection endpoint and a key that you provide to the SDK mm -hmm. and it will call it from wherever you are in the world. So the nice part there and with the multi-region stuff is that if you want to set up in other data centers, if you want to set up your app on-prem or on other cloud providers, great. You can right. still talk to Cosmos and there'll probably be a region really close right. that will still get you the latency you want. And so if I'm setting up my app and I'm saying, okay, go talk to Cosmos DB, you know, get my key. Yeah. You said that there's a JavaScript SDK that I can pull in. So is that just npm install Cosmos DB or? Yeah, it's under Azure-Cosmos. Uh, so at azure dash cosmos uh, forward slash Cosmos. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, we're kind of trying to centralize some of our SDK stuff so that it's all no, that makes a, sense. a little better, you know, better unified yeah. story. And so it just recently moved there. Nice. We just rewrote it this last year. It's all in TypeScript now. Um, it, we, Ooh, fancy. I might be a little bit biased, but I think it's actually like really, really good. <laughs> nice. So it's something I would want to use. Right. You just install that and then... Is there some kind of uh, ORM that's set up for it, or is it just make this query, or yeah, yeah what, what levels do you get for that? So the, the reading and writing is pretty straightforward. Cosmos has this concept of databases and containers, so that's uh -huh. kind of the hierarchy. We have uh, a database contains several containers, and then a container contains items within them. Those are the actual right. documents. You can create and uh, edit databases and containers and delete them as well all through the SDK so that all kind of happens in the SDK. Right. And then uh, the items themselves, reading and writing is very straightforward. You just provide objects that get serialized to JSON. Right. Um, the, the really the SDK, the fancy stuff it does is around querying. So querying in Cosmos, you know, there's kind of two ways to do it. You can either do a single partition query right. where you give it a partition key and then it will only execute that query against that individual partition. Uh -huh. uh, that's sort of the primary way and hopefully your data structured that way. But you know, we, we talked about this before. Sometimes you want to scan your database. Sometimes you want to look at stuff across a bunch of different partitions. Right. Um, you need to do analytics, stuff like that. And that all works, but the SDK does a lot more heavy lifting there. So we will actually go talk to all the partitions, figure out which ones it needs to talk to, uh -huh. uh, figure out which kind of operations it needs to do, and then sort of aggregate results for it. I gotcha. Cool. So what am I not thinking about that I need to be thinking about? Other cool stuff with Cosmos, we have an emulator. Uh, the emulator is very neat. 
there's a good part and a bad part. Um, the good mm-hmm. part, it is a very faithful emulator because it is actually emitted from the Cosmos source code. Right. So this isn't something that we wrote separately right. to mimic Cosmos. Like, there's occasions on the emulator you'll get a like region not supported error uh-huh. and things like that. Right. Like it, it is the <laughs> Cosmos source code under the hood. Uh, so that means it's very faithful. Right. Unfortunately, it only runs on Windows. Um, oh. So you can run it in a <laughs> Docker container on Windows. Um, you can run it on Windows. But, uh, you know, we definitely, it, it's, it's on our roadmap, and it's something we're trying to figure out how to, how to support. Fair enough. I mean, yeah, we get these things a piece, a piece at a time everywhere. So, yeah. Yeah. And I know a lot of people are doing JavaScript on Windows. I know a lot of people aren't. So, yeah, it just depends on where you're at. I, I, I really try to have empathy for both sides. So I do, you know, I've, like, split my time. About half right. my time I develop on my Mac, and half the time I'm on Windows Box. Gotcha. So yeah, so I go set up uh, Cosmos DB, start playing with it. It sounds like um, if I have to go and muck through the data myself, I can also just you know do one-off queries to you know modify data, and that's not a big deal. Yeah, definitely. It's um, it you know we sort of want to support all of those use cases. Right. Other NoSQL databases, it's like you can't query that way at all. Um, right. At least with Cosmos, you can. Like it is uh-huh. possible to do. It just might take a long time. Right. So if I'm building a query with the Cosmos DB SDK, am I typically am I kind of pushed toward SQL as a default or the so the SDK supports SQL. That is right. like the primary case. If you're using the Mongo API, we just recommend you use all the open source Mongo tooling already out there. And we build the APIs with all of those in mind. Right. Um, so I, I same with Cassandra. Same with Cassandra, same with um I I think I forgot to mention at the beginning, but we have a Gremlin API. Mm-hmm. So if you You did mention it, but I did. Okay. Yeah. So we, all that works with all the open source Gremlin tools. Um, yeah. So the, gotcha. the all those we strive to like meet the open source community where they are, right? Uh, not have a separate new SDK. No, that makes sense. So how long has Cosmos been around? Because I know that it kind of changed names a few times and kind of changed focus a few times. It's it's going on at least four years now. I've been with the team just about a year. Uh-huh. Um, and right before I joined, they changed the name to Cosmos DB from right. Document DB. Yeah. Uh, which is, is not confusing at all because Amazon now has a service called Document DB, uh, <laughs> which is also has a Mongo API. <laughs> right. So uh, I've definitely had a few issues come my way where I'm like, ah, I'm sorry, you're on the wrong cloud provider. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're talking to the wrong person. That's funny. So. Cool. I don't know if I have any other questions. I guess one other thing that kind of came through my head was uh, if I need to like copy my database so that I can do staging and things like that, is that pretty easy? Right now, we don't support just like a click and copy kind of thing, which is unfortunate. Um, it's definitely something we get a lot of crust for. The The best way to do that is using the change feed. So mm-hmm. there's ways with the change feed to go back in time and sort of go through your entire database. Okay. Um, and there are, so there are ways to do it where you can have via the change feed like an entire copy made of your database. I gotcha. And that's sort of the, the way we recommend doing it. But it, it's certainly, certainly a pain point we're aware of. Cool. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job 
without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash angular. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Well, the, the last part of the show that we do typically is picks. Okay. And there's just things you want to shout out about. I think everybody that I've talked to, they've all said, well, Game of Thrones is kind of the thing that everybody's watching, so I'm going to pick something else. Okay. But, you know, it could be a TV show, it could be a video game, it could be a coding tool. But yeah, it's just kind of our way to give people an idea of, hey, what what are you into these days? So, Oh, man. What am I into these days? That's a really good question. You know, I think my current sort of like minor obsession is that they just released Final Fantasy X, the remaster for the Nintendo Switch. Oh, nice. And that was like, you know, I I was sort of coming of age right when that game came out. Right. And so it's it's sort of me going back and being able to like play all this stuff when I was playing when I was a teenager and so nice. relive a little bit. So I'm very, very much enjoying that. I can't tell if that makes you really old or really young. Cause I didn't, I didn't ever play it. So. <laughs> so I think it came out, you know, I was maybe 15. That would have been 2000 or something like that. 2001. Yeah. So good deal. Um, yeah. Nice. Yeah. I've been playing a lot of breath of the wild oh, on breath my of- switch and that that's just fun. Breath of the Wild is such an amazing game. Yep. I, I actually just also restarted Breath of the Wild, just, you know, do it all over again. Nice. So. Yeah, my wife, she's really into the Lego-style games. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're a little bit cheesy. I play them with my wife and kids, but, yeah, if, if I'm picking a game for me to play, it's something else. Me, me and my wife play Overcooked. That's our, our game. Overcooked? Yeah, have you, are you not familiar uh-uh. with Overcooked? Ah, it's a great uh, like co-op game. So you run this little um, restaurant, uh-huh. and you have to like make things. So you know somebody has to go get the burger meat, and somebody has to cook the burger. And oh wow, you have these little characters you kind of take around to different parts of the restaurant to do the different parts of making the meal. Um, so it's these little you know maybe two three minute long uh, right you know games where you're you're trying to get as many of these meals come you know as, as right. possible right. And they're they're kind of the orders are coming in across the top of the mm-hmm. screen so. That makes sense, and so you're communicating a whole lot. Okay, you you make this, and I'll do this, and <laughs> it it definitely makes for, for some fun stuff because sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it doesn't go well, or somebody <laughs> drops the ball, and then you're kind of in the living room yelling at each other. But you know, it's it's we have a lot of fun doing it. That sounds like fun. Is that on the Switch? Yeah. So there's Overcooked, and they just came out with the Overcooked too. Um, so, okay. So there's two of them now. Sounds like fun. I'm trying to think if there's anything that I want to shout out about. You do five of these in, in three days, and it's like, I'm kind of out of things. Yeah. One thing that I, I am going to pick, and I'm actually wearing it, uh, so I, I got a, kind of a hip pouch. It's I didn't want a fanny pack, we'll put it that way. But at the same time, when I go to the conferences, a lot of times I need a place to put stickers and business cards and things like that. And I don't want to take my backpack, because typically when I'm meeting people, I don't need my laptop and so um, I got this. It was like 20 bucks on Amazon. And uh, yeah, so it has a strap that goes around your leg and a strap that goes around your waist. Yeah. And uh, yeah, then it's just a convenient place to throw stuff and it doesn't look as dorky as a fanny pack. So I'm going to pick that. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, folks. But I like it. I, I definitely am very particular about my backpacks. Mine, I don't know what I did with mine here, but uh, I only buy Osprey backpacks. Oh, really? Yeah. That's the only backpack brand I'll ever buy. They they have like this lifetime unlimited any reason warranty. Oh nice. Um, and I have definitely put some Osprey packs through their paces, and <laughs> I have been like, hey, that's the zipper broke, and they send it to them. They send me right back fixed. Oh nice. That's good to know. Yeah. The backpack I'm using, I'm trying to remember the brand, but uh, 
I ran into them at CES, and uh, you know they're like, "Hey, take this bag and give it a review," and I I really love it. So I'll have to remember what it's called, and I'll put I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. But two of the areas in the backpack uh, they zip all the way down to the bottom, so you can lay it open. So when you travel, um, you don't have to pull your laptop out because it's on oh, top. Yeah, it's just sitting there, and it's got a ton of room in it for all kinds of stuff. And I've really, really liked having it. So I do need to post a video review of it now that I've been using it for a while. But yeah, it's easily one of the nicer backpacks that I've had just because it has a ton of space in it and it does all that stuff. Now I have TSA pre-check, so I just throw my bag on the conveyor belt and walk away. Yeah. Yeah, if you do a lot of traveling and you don't have that convenience, I can see it being really nice because you just unzip it and you just lay it folded completely open on your... Pull it right out. You don't even have to pull it out. Because it's on top. Oh, got it. So they can just send it through scan just like that. Yeah, because they can see the laptop sitting there in the in the backpack. Interesting. So you just send it through. CES tends to give us the the cheapo uh, see through plastic backpacks. Yeah, I freaking hate those things. I have like three of them. (laughs) You should do a whole show on conference swag and who gives the best swag. Um, I should. I'll give a little shout out fastly. The company Fastly. Uh-huh. I've been to a couple of their conferences, and by far they have given me the best swag I've ever had. Like, oh, nice. They give me sweatshirts that I actually wear on an everyday basis because they're really nice. Nice. Yeah, like you look them up online, and they're like $90 sweatshirts, and they have like a little logo in the corner, you know, uh-huh. so it's not obtrusive. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing I think is funny is at conferences, they give you the sweat the, or the T-shirts, and they have their logo like real big across your chest, right? And I'm like, I'm like... Yeah, I mean, sometimes they're they're really nicely made, and so I'll wear them because they're comfortable. Yeah. But most of those, they just sit in my closet because I'm just like, they're not my favorite shirt. Yeah. And so if they put some clever on it, you know, something, oh, you know, I, I've seen a few shirts out here. It, it looks like somebody's giving out shirts on, like, debugging, and it's got, you know, some funny stuff on it or something. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I could wear that to a tech event, and, you know, people would laugh, you yeah. know, or people would enjoy it. But, yeah, if it's just a logo, meh. <laughs> but, yeah. Cool. Are they giving out the sweatshirts here at Build? Uh, I haven't. I don't. I haven't seen Fastly here. Okay, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I was another conference. They gave out Yeti water, you know, things like the nice oh, yeah. big like Yeti, you know, things. Uh-huh. Yeah, they they give out good stuff. Yep. Yeah, I was at NG Conf. Yeah. Uh, for Angular last week, and they always give out a ton of great swag. Nice. So, cool. Okay. Well, if people want to find you online, where do they go? Uh, so I'm at South Pole Steve. On Twitter, on GitHub, pretty much anywhere on the internet you see South Pole Steve, is there a story behind that? There is a story behind that. So my first job out of college was I worked in Antarctica on a physics research project. Oh, wow. Um, So I I came to coding late. I didn't go to school for that. Um, Right. I was doing other mechanical engineering stuff. And so, yeah, I I went to the South Pole for a month right after college. Um, It was a blast, and I had a lot of fun. Nice. And now I've never been back, so I'm, (laughs) you know, I feel like I need to go back to, like, renew my credentials, right? Because people always ask me about it. And I'm like, ah, it was like a decade ago, right? Yeah, it's not a destination a lot of people go to, though, so. Uh, yeah, it, it's certainly unique, but I will say, like, it's fun. I, I'm glad I went. I don't know if I would go back. Like, it's very, takes a long time to get there. It's very cold. It's very, uh, you know, after the first week, you're kind of like, okay, well, now what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm at the bottom of the earth, and it's yep. boring and white and cold in every direction. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. I'm glad you made it back. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right, well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, folks, and we will uh, catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. 